Now I get a light. If your light doesn't shine, nothing's got very good going on. Anyway, we'll get to announcements here. Uh, we have a dinner tonight at 6. I'm sure uh, people have signed up to provide some of the food for that. Some of it's being provided, I understand. So 6 o'clock this evening, we can all be here for a, a meal together. And then tomorrow morning at 8.30, a breakfast. So if you don't get filled up tonight, come on back in the morning and try again. We certainly had a nice lunch yesterday. I got plenty full and brought part of it home. It lasted till after campfire at 10.30. Then I finished it. <clears throat> so I think that's about it as far as uh, announcements are concerned. Now, I've done a little repetition the last two, three days, two days anyway, and I hope that didn't prove too boring to go over some of the same material, but I... I felt that picking up a little from each one of those passages about uh, the church and what's been going on here in the end time was was worth doing in any case. Uh, But we're past that now. And uh, now what? Now what? I think we saw over the last few sermons that God is not slack concerning His promise. And he promised that there would be 6,000 years of Satan and man ruling the earth, and then Christ would take over for a 1,000 years. And he used the creation week, a day as is a 1,000 years, to show that. And that's one of those things that Herbert Armstrong learned from the holy days, is the 7,000-year plan of God uh, here on this earth. It started at a finite time, it will end at a, at a finite time. And he is always on time. Uh, so Christ established the Jubilee year in Luke 4 there uh, as being announced probably on atonement of 27 A.D. That means that there will be a Jubilee year again starting an atonement in 2027. Uh, And that one will be the completion of 2,000 years since Christ made that announcement. So he raised up you know, in the millennial cycle, Herbert Armstrong in 26, 27, 1926 and 27, 1900 years after his proclamation there in Luke. Now, Luke uh, was the beginning of his ministry and the beginning of the ministry of the apostles, which would last about 70 years. Then he began to teach Herbert Armstrong in 1926, 27, and in about 70 years, mid-90s, I use 1996-97 as a reference for several reasons, but it was about that time uh, that it was gone, 70 years later. Now, if he allotted 100 years, as he did Noah, for the end-time work, and Peter and others tie Noah in with the end, as did Christ there in Matthew 24, uh, from 90. 697, Worldwide Church of God used up 70 years. Now that only leaves 30 in the 50-year cycle for everything else to be done. And we've used up a lot of that. 
So where are we and where are we going and what's going to happen? Let's go back to Ezekiel 17 for a few minutes. There's the parable and the riddle that we went through and the parallels between it and worldwide are, are so absolutely obvious. And uh, in verse 21, it talks about the end of that tree that grew as a vine. It says, All his fugitives with all his band shall fall by the sword, and they that remain shall be scattered toward all winds. And you shall know that I, the Eternal, have spoken it. So, if we apply the Scriptures to Israel, spiritual Israel first, uh, Ezekiel 5 applies. He says that a third would die by famine and pestilence, a third by the sword, and a third taken captive, and some of them even uh, will be thrown back in the fire. So that we have seen accomplished in the church, uh, scattered to the winds that which was left. So it's gone. Then I briefly touched on verses 22 on, because God tells us what comes next. Thus says the eternal God, I will also take of the highest branch of the high cedar. Now you might have noticed at the beginning, he didn't say he did it. It just says there would be a leader who would appear and those things would happen. Now I'm not, I'm sure that God called him. I'm not saying he didn't. But it became more, in some respects, a work of Herbert Armstrong than it did a work of God. And then it became more or less a work of Satan once Herbert Armstrong was gone. And it has disappeared. <clears throat> but here God says, I'm directly going to be involved. Now that squares with Zechariah and the story there where Christ says, I will rise up and I will take charge. So he was involved with Worldwide, no doubt. And we were called there. So I'm not saying God wasn't there, he was there. But he is going to take a more direct hand in this last 30 years. He will oversee it himself. He says he will suddenly come to his temple in Malachi. He says he will come and dwell with us and be a wall of fire around us in Zechariah. So he is going to be more actively involved. And that's why I think he says, I... I'm going to take this next one in the mount. Let's see. I'll take of the highest branch of the high cedar and will set it, plant it. I will crop off from the top of his young twigs a tender one. So he's picturing here a tree that is tall and lofty. Uh, I'm not talking about worldwide. It's already gone by now. But he's saying I'm taking something that is worthwhile here from the top of a tree. And I'll plant it in the ground, and it shall bring forth boughs. Wait a minute, I didn't finish reading this. Take uh, the top of his young twigs, a tender one, and will plant it upon a high mountain and imminent. So it's going to be in a mountainous area. It's not going to be out among some rolling hills in the Middle East somewhere. And... Mountains also represent governments, and this is going to be a government selected by God, so it will be a high mountain, a good mountain, a righteous mountain. 
In the mountain of the height of Israel will I plant it. And it shall bring forth boughs and bear fruit and be a goodly cedar. And under it shall dwell all fowls of every wing, and the shadow of the branches thereof shall they dwell. Now, if we get into Haggai, it talks about how God will stir a remnant of his people to come and to be a part of this tree, to dwell under it, the government that he sets up. And it will be proper. And there are many other scriptures that we can refer to having to do with that. And all the trees of the field shall know that I, the Eternal, have brought down the high tree. All the trees of the field. Trees are symbolic of churches. And they're all going to know that here is something God is doing and has done. So they'll all become aware of it. Okay? I've brought down that which was the high tree. Uh, It was somewhat vine-like, but still... It was a tree and had to be brought down. Have exalted the low tree. So he takes a, a twig and plants it in the ground. And it's low at that point. Exalted the low tree, have dried up the green tree, and have made the dry tree to flourish. Now what is the dry tree? He's kind of mixing the analogy up a little bit here. But what happened to what was left of Worldwide? It dried up. So it was like a dead tree. Uh, That's the same analogy, or not the same analogy, but the same meaning he had about how the sons of Herbert Armstrong or of Hezekiah would be eunuchs in Babylon. A eunuch is dried up. It can't produce. It can't do anything. A dry tree is dead. Uh, It doesn't produce anything. So uh, it's a different analogy saying the same thing. No production out of it. So he has taken then something from the dry tree. Now he planted one that was alive here, okay? So he must be taking something from the dry tree and cause it to flourish. Now the dry dead tree was worldwide. And everything was scattered from there. And he said he only had a few names left there that were still alive out of the tree that died. So he has to be gathering people then and causing that which has been unproductive, a eunuch, a dry tree, and make it productive again because he says it will flourish. So he takes a live twig and plants it, and then he takes something from the dry dead tree and causes it to grow along with the live twig until something beautiful is made. It will flourish. Have you seen a tree that flourished? A tree full of peaches, a tree full of apples, a vine full of grapes. That's flourishing, growing. Uh, So he says, I'm going to take something that's been dead, and I'm going to make it to grow. Uh, It's kind of like injecting into... A live twig, and that twig is small. doesn't start big, like a grain of mustard seed, and it grows. And as it grows, it begins to produce. And then ultimately, those are the people God is going to use to establish the world tomorrow, the thousand-year millennium of God. So it will flourish until that little mustard seed has covered the earth. But it has to start 
before Christ returns, as we shall see. So, there's hope after we read this story about rebellion and people breaking covenants and shaking hands and disagreeing and then doing their own thing, and it dies. It's all scattered. God says, okay, I'm going to do something different now. Let's go back to Revelation 3 for a few moments, and let's uh, emphasize this just a little bit to see how this fits in with the end-time churches. Because the book of Revelation, if any other book is an end-time book other than Daniel, it has to be the book of Revelation. It's all about end-time events and the return of Christ. Now, in chapters 2 and 3, he goes through and gives uh, a rundown on seven churches. And I do believe that there are at least two good fulfillments of this. Perhaps three. There were seven churches that Paul spoke to, uh, and their names were used here, that they were kind of a circuit. And I believe that these existed uh, nose to tail down through history in one fulfillment of this. But I think I can show you that there is an end-time fulfillment of all seven. Uh, they didn't... There, there's, there's the historical perspective, and then there's the end-time perspective. We'll go in a few moments to... Well, let's, let's go there now. Isaiah 41. We'll come back here. Uh, he's talking about a new work beginning in Isaiah 40. And... Within that, in chapter 41, he says in verse 18, I will open rivers in high places and fountains in the midst of the valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land springs of water. I think this is physically and spiritually both. I will plant in the wilderness the cedar, the acacia, the myrtle, the oil, uh, That's the wilderness. And then in the desert, the fir tree, the pine, and the box tree, or the elder, box elder, together. He mentions seven different species of trees in the wilderness and desert, combines the two here. So, seven trees, speaking of several uh, churches, seven churches, that they may see and know and consider and understand together that the hand of the Eternal has done this. This isn't just a physical planting of trees in the desert. Uh, You can have all kinds of trees spring up, and they don't understand much of what you have to say. So this is obviously speaking of people uh, symbolized by trees. And uh, that's an end-time prophecy. So, I think that goes very well together uh, with Revelation 2 and 3, showing that there will be seven at the end. Let's tie also Isaiah 4 in with this to make the point uh, stronger. uses a different analogy, but it says the same thing. Isaiah begins by showing how frustrated God is with both spiritual and physical Israel. Uh, You always have both. And he talks to them about their sins, uh, then in chapter 3, he goes down and, and talks about it some more. Women, children are our oppressors, and women rule over us, which is where we've come to in this nation. 
and how we're haughty and walk with stretched forth necks and so on. Uh, he says in verse 25, Your men shall fall by the sword, and your mighty in the war, and her gates shall lament and mourn, and she being desolate shall sit upon the ground. So both spiritual Israel and ultimately physical Israel, which is very near to come now, are going to be sitting on the ground in desolation. The church is already there, and the nation is coming quickly upon it as we sit here. In that day, so when this happens, in that day, seven women shall take hold of one man. Women in the Bible symbolize churches. So whether it's trees or whether it's women, uh, seven, here again, seven churches will take hold of one man, saying, We will eat our own bread and wear our own apparel, only let us be called by your name to take away our reproach. So we have the churches out here scattered now, and people are ashamed, they're upset, they're confused, they're frustrated, they don't know where to go, and wherever they do go, they are not satisfied, but they somehow sit there. But they're kind of sitting on the ground in the dust and mourning because of what has happened to us. <clears throat> so it says, seven will take hold of one. And that day shall the branch of the eternal be beautiful and glorious. He talks about how he will send his servant the branch in Zechariah. Uh, a branch of the tree or a twig of the tree who will be the physical man in charge. The fruit of the earth shall be excellent and comely for them that are escaped of Israel. So some will escape, spiritual of the church, some will escape and they will begin to produce fruit i.e., flourish. So the analogy is the same here uh, with Ezekiel, a tree that flourishes and produces fruit. Uh, and these seven women represent seven trees, or churches. And it should come to pass that he that is left in Zion and he that remains in Jerusalem shall be called holy. He's not going to call people under this tree that he is establishing that are not going to be holy. Even everyone that is written among the living, spiritually living, when the eternal shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and shall have purged the blood of Jerusalem from the midst thereof by the spirit of judgment and the spirit of burning. Now, didn't he tell us in Revelation 3 that because we were laid a sin, we would be put through the fire and go through the spirit of burning and judgment uh, to see if we would repent. It's talking about the same thing here. And the Eternal will create upon every dwelling place of Mount Zion and upon her assemblies a cloud and smoke by day and the shining of a flaming fire by night, for upon all the glory shall be a defense. He says he'll protect us, he'll have us in a place of refuge, there'll be a wall of fire around us in Zechariah Two, and there shall be a tabernacle for a shadow in the day from the heat and for a place of refuge and for a covert from storm and from rain. So a weather change, uh, protection day and night from the elements. So it's, it's a good thing that he's announcing here that is going to come out of all this destruction that we have had. Now, we might go to Isaiah 6 for just a moment and tie that in with this as well to see 
uh, how many are going to be considered holy, because Haggai says he will stir a remnant up to come and to build his temple, to build Jerusalem, and to do a work. So here in Isaiah 6, uh, Isaiah says, I'm a man of unclean lips, in verse 5, and one of the seraphims came and put a coal in his hand, and he laid it on my mouth and said, Lo, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away and your sin purged. So here's Isaiah uh, being told to prophesy. His sin was taken away because he says, I'm a man of unclean lips. Why, why should I take your message? And I heard the voice of the Eternal saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then said Isaiah, here I am, send me. And he said, Go and tell this people, Hear indeed, but understand not, and see indeed, but perceive not. Make the heart of this people fat, and make their ears heavy, and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and convert and be healed. Now, that's the present state of the church. It's in a mess. And I, what he's telling Isaiah here, he's not telling him that he is to go put them to sleep. He's saying that's the state they're in, and you can go and preach to them, but they're not going to hear. They're not going to listen. And they're not going to be converted and healed. So then said, I, Lord, how long? I've got to preach this message, and nobody's going to listen to me. <laughs> And he answered, Until the cities be wasted without inhabitant, and the houses without man, and the land be utterly desolate. And the eternal have removed men far away, and there be a great forsaking in the midst of the land. Now, so far the context here has been all about the church, about spiritual Israel. So, it is now laid waste. And physical Israel is about to be laid waste, and the cities will be uninhabited physically. Uh, we see in Jeremiah that he says that those who come, who are stirred to come to Zion, uh, will come just ahead of the northern army. Just ahead of it, saying, how do I get to Zion? Here comes the army. So just as this nation is being taken over, there will be people who will escape ahead of what is coming. So he says, until there be a great forsaking, verse 13 is the encouraging part. But yet in it shall be a tenth, and it shall return, and shall be eaten as a teal tree and as an oak, whose substance is in them when they cast their leaves, so the holy seed shall be the substance thereof. So God planted in worldwide a seed that is going to produce twig, tree, seed, woman, eunuch, whatever. Uh, we read there in Isaiah 56 how the eunuchs that keep the Sabbath and do the things God says will become productive again. Now, there's a type there with Abraham. He had become, through old age, a eunuch. <clears throat> and Sarah was way past. Couldn't produce anything between them. And yet God created a miracle. And there was Isaac. So what he's done in the past, he's going to do in the future. He'll take us eunuchs in Babylon and us dry trees uh, 
and 10% will return. Now, a remnant of a bolt of cloth is usually reckoned at about 10%. And here he says 10% will return. You know, out of all that was, God is going to take his increase. He is going to get his tithe, a tithe of his people. 10% of them are going to come. That's one of the reasons tithing is such an important doctrine that God established. is because it represents people that he is going to utilize for his purposes. That's why you brought the best of your flock, not the worst, to God. And he is going to take the best of his flock here at the end that he has called and bring them in as a living sacrifice to show the world that he is God. So that 10% is very, very important. He uses, again, the tree analogy right here. Uh, mentions two trees, but we've seen already seven. So now let's go back to the book of Revelation and talking to the seven churches, and that puts it somewhat in perspective. But let's approach this today from the nose-to-tail perspective of the churches as they existed through history. And Herbert Armstrong always thought that Worldwide Church of God was the Philadelphia Church. Uh, he thought Sardis was the Seventh-day Church of God before uh, Worldwide started. Now, let's see if that pans out. Let's read these, uh, both Sardis and Philadelphia, and see what fits, because this is very important for us to understand. He looked at it as a current and future event in a way, and Sardis as a past event. Because Sardis, as he looked at it, the Seventh-day Church of God was dead. Well, there were people there still. It was still alive, still is today. It hasn't died out. I, I think there's a pretty good size group in Denver and scattered here and there. There are still those congregations around. But let's look at this in a larger sense. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things, says he that has the seven spirits of God, I know your works, that you have a name, that you live and are dead. You're the worldwide church of God. That sounds pretty lively. But he says, that's not really the case. Uh, you're dying and would die. He says, be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. Now, as I look back in perspective, we had been given a lot of good doctrine. And he says, hold fast that which you had there and don't let it go away. Strengthen the things that remain, that are ready to die. Now, did they begin to die? Did it wither in the furrows, as Ezekiel 17 says, and then go ahead and die? Now, Herbert Armstrong could not really have foreseen that. And I think that God left him in ignorance of that for a purpose. If he had understood that everything he was doing was ultimately going to die, he wouldn't have been nearly so efficient and effective and wouldn't have worked so hard at building something he knew was just going to drop over. 
I mean, what's the motive here? What's the motivation? So he labeled or labored under the illusion that this was something that was alive and was going to remain. But he feared the other. As he told me in 1983, I need to take these pills because I'm afraid if I don't, I'll die and the church will fall apart. So in, on some level, he understood that there was trouble to come if he died. He grasped that. Well, that's after he'd called it Philadelphia for 50, 60 years. So, you look alive, but you're dead. So he says, watch, be careful, think. Strengthen that which remains. Don't let go of it. Make it stronger. That are ready to die, for have not found your works perfect before God. Now, he didn't find Hezekiah's perfect before God. Overall, he assessed Hezekiah's life as worthwhile and good, and he, he did a lot of good things, but it wasn't perfect either. He had some problems. So did Herbert Armstrong. Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard and hold fast and repent. So he's saying what you were taught essentially was valid, doctrinally. And you're to hang on to that and don't turn loose of it. So as soon as Herbert Armstrong died, Joe DeCott said, turn loose all that stuff, in essence. Began quickly throwing out each and every one of the doctrines that we had been taught and been faithful to keep. So the story is here as well. Fits perfectly. Remember, therefore, how you've received and heard. Hold fast, hang on to the doctrine, and repent. Repent of what? Our Laodiceanism, our slackness, our lack of uh, attention to God and attentiveness. Those things that are mentioned about the Laodicean church, which we'll get to. Now, he tells them to hold fast and repent. If therefore you shall not watch, if you don't pay attention, you don't stay on top of this, I will come on you as a thief, and you shall not know what hour I will come upon you. And didn't it hit us pretty suddenly? Herbert Armstrong dies. Joe DeCott says, I'm going to follow in your steps. Shook hands with him and said, I'll do everything you did. And then suddenly, it all got taken away. Perfect description of what happened. You have a few names, even in Sardis, which have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. So out of all that worldwide was, he says there's only a few names left that have been faithful. Not very many. He that overcomes, the same shall be clothed in white raiment, and I will not blot out his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. So some take the warning. Some take heed. Some watch. Some hang on. But then we were all scattered, right? So if Sardis fits worldwide, what about, where does Philadelphia come in here? It's next in the sequence. 
to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things says he that is holy, he that is true, he that has the key of David. Now, I know one preacher in one of the bigger uh, scattered groups that says he has the key of David. I think he calls his broadcast the key of David. Or something like that. He doesn't have the key of David. This doesn't say he gave the key of David to a man. It says, he that has the key of David. Now, he told uh, Peter he would give him the keys of the kingdom. In other words, those things that will unlock knowledge of, opportunity to, the kingdom of heaven. So, I think it does apply in that sense. But Christ is the one that controls it. He is holy and he is true. He that opens and no man shuts. So this is a being that can open something and no man can shut it. Okay? So I think it's talking first of all of Christ, and then he gives the knowledge that is needed to be preached and to be heard, even as Herbert Armstrong preached it and we heard it and received it and followed it, and then it was taken away by Joe DeKotch and his son. So here he says, there will be a door that opens and no man can shut it. Now, can you say that of Worldwide? Herbert Armstrong used to say that. We, we have an open door God has given us and it won't be shut. Well, I beg to differ. <laughs> it was shut. It was shut tight. Uh, we read in Zechariah 5 how a ball of lead was thrown in its mouth and shut it up. And it got planted on its base back in Babylon. It wasn't godly anymore. It was in Babylon. So this is this is history. But that broadcast was shut off. The plain truth was shut off. Everything was shut off. Just died. Gone. And he shuts and no man opens. Now there have been some that have tried, right? Uh, Gerald Flurry, David Pack, Rod Meredith, uh, the consortium that started United, and so on. They've tried to open it, but it won't open, will it? They can't go to the whole world as a witness so that the end can come. They're eunuchs in Babylon. They can do nothing. They're a dry tree. All of them. So are we. <laughs> we can't do anything either, can we? Nope. I'm not throwing rocks here. I live in a glass house. We all were part of a dry tree. We were all part of the eunuchs of Babylon once he spewed us out. Well, now, we're talking here about a door being open that no man can shut. That hasn't happened yet. Has it? There's no door open right now. Anywhere. So... This is something that has yet to occur. Hasn't happened yet. He says, I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, and no man can shut it. So it says, here's Christ who can open a door. He can shut a door. And if he opens it, no man can shut it. And then he says to the Philadelphia group, I will open a door, and no man can shut it. Now, we're going to get to that door pretty soon in discussing this, and we're going to find that the whole world is going to try to shut it, and they can't. 
Satan is going to try to shut it. The false prophet, the beast, are going to try to shut it. And they can't. Can't do it. For you have a little strength. Not much. And what does he tell these people who form the Philadelphia era? In the Old Testament prophecies, it says, be strong, be of good courage, and work. Well, here he says, you don't have much strength, so he says, be strong. You've kept my word and have not denied my name. So here are some people who have actually kept his word, not let it go away. Now, what's his name? Up until a certain point, he says there in Matthew, you call him Jesus, but they shall call him Emmanuel. Now, he's been called Jesus for a long time, but his other name is Emmanuel. Jesus means salvation, basically. Emmanuel means God with us. Now, didn't I just quote several scriptures is that he is going to stand, he is going to come, he is going to come suddenly to his temple, and he is going to dwell with us in Jerusalem and Zion and take a direct hand in the last iteration of his work here on the earth before Christ returns and the millennium begins. Behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews and are not, but do lie. Behold, I will make them to come and worship before your feet, and to know that I have loved you. Did that happen with Worldwide? No. Because you have kept the word of my patience, doesn't he tell us there in Matthew 24, to endure to the end? The word of my patience, I also will keep you from the hour of temptation which shall come upon all the world to try them that dwell upon the earth. Was worldwide church of God kept from the great tribulation that is coming to try all those that are on the earth? Did it go to a place of safety as per Matthew 24 when the abomination was set up in the temple? No, that didn't happen. But now it's dead. As of 1996-97, it no longer exists. Scattered pieces that are Laodiceans is all that still exists. So if it's dead, how is it going to be saved out of the tribulation? Can't be talking about worldwide. This can't happen to it. It's, you know... If you're dead, you're not going to be saved from the tribulation. You'll just be dead. So he says, Behold, I come quickly. Hold that fast which you have, that no man take your crown. So he's talking about when Philadelphia is here, his coming is imminent. He tells them, I come quickly. It's not very far off once Philadelphia is established. And that they will be pillars in the temple and have the name of God and be of the city of God in New Jerusalem, part of the 144,000 of Revelation 21. Now let's go to verse 14 about Laodicea. 
These things, says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginner of the creation of God. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I would you were one or the other. So then, because you're lukewarm and neither cold or hot, I will spew you out of my mouth. So we talked about something that died, and now we're talking about something that got spewed. Now, if I look at the recent history of Worldwide Church of God, the church itself had pretty much died by 96, 97, and gone into the evangelical world and Protestantism and the synagogue of Satan. So, as a spiritual organism before God, it was dead. And then what happened immediately? The rest of us got scattered. Immediately got scattered. So what this shows is that there is a break in the history here. That which was dying went ahead and died, and then the, what remained was spewed out and scattered. That's what actually happened. So it didn't go from Sardis to Philadelphia to Laodicea. It went from Sardis directly to a spewing. That means Philadelphia did not occur, has not occurred. It is a future event. Now, what does he say? You were lukewarm, so I spewed you. Because you say, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing, and know not that you were wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Now, weren't we all in that self-righteous mode? We are the church of God. We're the only church that God has called out of the world. The rest of the churches are satanic churches. And we're okay. We're okay. We're obeying God. We're the only good ones. And we got self-righteous about it. Didn't realize what poor spiritual shape we were truly in. We were depending on colleges and big income and all those things, and our devotion to God himself began to wane. That's the story in Ezekiel 17. The roots turned to the man, not to God. And that's a pretty sad situation when you turn to a man instead of God who made it all. Man didn't make nothing. So we're to look to physical leaders, yes. But we're not to put them ahead of God by any means ever. Never. Like Peter and John says, did you think we did this? We're just fishermen. And you're seeing people healed? You think this came from us? No, it came from God. Worship God. We can anoint you. We can tell you get up. But God's the one that does it. It ain't us. It's always been that way. Always will be that way. God uses men, but we don't worship men. We worship God. And if we get too devoted in our sight to men, we can begin to forget God because we think men have the answers. But they don't. Now they have the keys, the knowledge, the understanding, but they can't save you. You can't save yourself and no man can save you. But we were pretty self-righteous and thought we had it made. We would then on the plane go to Petra Got news for you. <laughs> Peter ain't even the place. <laughs> so 
So he said, I counsel to you to buy of me gold tried in the fire that you may be truly rich and white raiment that you may be clothed and that the shame of your nakedness does not appear and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. So he says, we became blind. Didn't he tell Isaiah, go to this people, preach to them. They'll be deaf, they'll be blind, they won't see, they won't get it. Jeremiah preached to them for 23 years, he said, and they were blind and they didn't get it. And here's talks about people who got preached to but were blind and didn't get it. So those Old Testament scriptures all fit this end time prophecy. Now, he's not talking about us being physically naked, is he? No, we, we all still wore clothes, didn't we? Best I know. But it's a spiritual problem. The shame of your spiritual nakedness does not appear. Anoint your eyes with eye salve so you can see. God told Isaiah, nah, they ain't going to see. And, and Isaiah said, how long is that going to last? Until it's all destroyed. And then a tenth, a tithe, will return. My remnant will do my work. So it's not going to be all these Laodiceans that we have been, all of us. Ten percent will repent and will turn and will come and produce. Now that has to be, he says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. This is right here at the end. He's standing at the door. Remember Song of Songs? Comes and knocks on the door and she says, Oh man, I've been asleep and I'm tired and I don't want to get my feet cold. And then he goes away and she says, Oh, I should have gotten up. Oh, what have I done? Ten virgins. Oh, I don't have oil. Too late. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come to him and will sup with him and he with me. That means the wedding supper. To him that overcomes will I grant to sit with me in my throne. So Laodicea is not without hope. God says if we repent, we'll be there. But he says only 10% initially are going to hear and repent and come to do his work. He says there in Zechariah 11 or 12, I never can remember which, uh, that about 30% or a third, he says, will repent during this fire and tribulation, tried in the fire, and they will also come and be part of the kingdom. But they've got to go through the tribulation. It's only 10% that will be protected from it. Well, who is that that's going to be protected? We already read it. Talking about the church called Philadelphia, that it will have an open door that will not be shut, and no man can shut it, and they will be faithful, keep his word, and not deny his name. And I think Emmanuel becomes important there because God with us is what is important. When Christ returns and then has his honeymoon and so on. It says there in Jude 14, from Enoch, he will come with ten thousands of his saints and we will always be with him. 
So God with us, Emmanuel, is more important than the general term, Jesus is salvation. That's a, that's a more generic term, and it, it covers the first resurrection, it covers the second resurrection, recover, it covers those in the millennium. So that's a name that does represent salvation. That's the only name whereby you can be saved. Don't get me wrong. But Emmanuel was a prophetic thing where he says, you will call him Jesus, they will call him Emmanuel. And when you start reading Isaiah 7 and 8, and it talks about Christ being born through us, he uses the term Emmanuel. So it's right here at the end that you don't say God is salvation. It's when he says, I'll come and dwell with you. I will come suddenly to you. It will be a twig that I will plant, actively involved. That's God with us. That's Emmanuel. And that will happen very shortly now. And recognizing those prophecies and recognizing where we are, we felt that that was what we should begin to use. doesn't mean the word Jesus should be thrown away completely, because it still represents salvation. There are people who say, well, that name itself, J-E-S-U-S, is pagan, uh, and you have to use Yahshua or Joshua or whatever they come up with out of the Hebrew or the Greek or whatever they put together. No, Worldwide Church of God used Jesus, Jesus Christ, for decades. And you know what? I saw anointings using that name where people were healed of all kinds of diseases and sicknesses and problems. Uh, and I cannot deny that God did that in Jesus' name. So J-E-S-U-S worked. I don't care what they say. It worked. I witnessed it. And I have also witnessed, in the last few years, some pretty dramatic healings using Emmanuel. So I've seen both work. But I know that he is coming to be with us soon. And that Emmanuel will be the proper name to use. God with us is salvation is implied there. So, we are looking for the Philadelphia Church of God. It has not occurred yet. That which was was, we were to hang on to doctrine from, and then it died. And then we were spewed. That meant that the Laodicean era had started. And we've been going through trials and fire and trouble and tribulation and difficulty and confusion ever since. But we've never seen what's said about Philadelphia happen yet. Now, I want to examine this more closely and let us see what has to happen. We've already seen there have to be seven churches planted in the wilderness. We've seen seven women will take, seven churches will take hold of one man. We've seen that it will be a 10% remnant that wash their eyes with eye salve and hear after Isaiah being said, you're wasting your words. And Isaiah thought, well, how long does that go on? I don't like wasting my words. I like to be heard. I like to be people to respond. He says, until it's all destroyed and then 10% come back. 
Now, God didn't lay that on poor Herbert Armstrong and tell him, wait a minute, Herbert, you got this wrong. You're Sardis. You're going to die. That would have been very discouraging. So he let him labor under that. He wasn't lying to him. He just never told him. Isn't that the way it was with the early apostles? He just never told them. They said, what is the sign of your coming in the end? And then he told them a bunch of things that were way beyond their lifetime. Way beyond. 2,000 years, almost. But they kept saying as they wrote their letters, sounding as if Christ is coming back in their lifetime. So he let them labor under that because what? They would be more motivated. They would say, oh, he's coming back soon. And they could stir the people up more to be what the people ought to be. Well, God knew the apostles were going to be killed, and he knew that the people would die, and some would fall away. He knew that. But for their span of lifetime, whether they were called when they were 20 or 80, however much time they had left, he wanted them to be motivated. Why? To grow, to overcome so that they could be in the kingdom of God. So, it was better for them not to know how long it was, because here you are, 30 years old, and you say, well, Christ isn't coming for another nearly 2,000 years, and uh, I'm supposed to pay and pray just till, till I die. And then it'll go on. You're not really motivated under those circumstances. You know, if you go to the employer and he hires you and you, he says, uh, yeah, I'll pay you someday. How much are you going to pay me? Oh, I don't know. I'll pay you some someday. How good an employee, how motivated are you going to be? But he tells you, I'm giving you this much and I'm giving it to you Friday or every two weeks or once a month, whatever. You have a goal and a purpose that you feel is achievable. So you can work at it. Now, Christ did the same thing with each era of the church until the very last one. Now, we only had a hundred years at the end, just as Noah only had a hundred years. Worldwide took up 70 of it. And since 1996-7, when it died, uh, we've been another 23 years. 2019. Now, if he returns, let's say the fall of 26, which I think is highly likely, seventh year, uh, then 2026 to the fall of 2027, and then the Jubilee would be announced at the Atonement in 27, which would be the Jubilee year beginning, 50 years, since he announced that in Luke 4. So here we are almost in... 2020, how well are you seeing? 2020, can you see that well? Are we still kind of looking through a glass darkly? We don't quite get it. 2020 is almost here. You better sharpen your eyes and your ears. See and hear. Because it's almost all destroyed, and it's almost time for a tenth to return, and the dry tree to begin to produce. Now, 23 years ago, 
God began to show some things. Well, actually, a little before that. I think that we have been and are a preparation crew for this. And why do I say that? Because of the information that was divulged. It was information that would help us do what needs to be done in order for these scriptures that we've been reading today to begin to come to pass. God is always prepared ahead. hundred years with Noah, <laughs> prepared ahead. Uh, he sent Abraham out way ahead of time and prepared him and Sarah. And they got old. And they wanted to have children. He'd been promised when he was a younger man. Your seed will cover the earth like the sands of the sea. And he says, oh goody. And then he got older and older and older. And then stuff didn't work very good. And stuff didn't work. And he said, hmm. And God comes and says, you're going to have a kid. And he said, you know, why didn't you do this a while back? <laughs> Now, it wasn't his time. It wasn't his plan. It wasn't his purpose. He had to show them that preparations had to be made, and then when he was ready, things would happen whether man could do it or not. It takes God to do something. That was the lesson. And then after Isaac got grown, he says, go kill him. And I'm sure that through Abraham's mind went several things. He may have thought, well, I've, God's seen me through, and I've been faithful, and he's done what he said he would do, and uh, surely there's some way out of this. Now, he may have thought that. I don't know. I think I would have. Maybe God has a way out of this. But he didn't question. He just saddled his ass and grabbed Isaac and took off. <clears throat> and then God provided an answer to that. And says, oh, don't kill him. I'm just checking you out to see if you really would be faithful. But he might have also had go through his mind, man, we waited and we waited and we had him. Now we've got to kill this and we've got to start over again. That might have gone through his head too. I don't know. There were probably all kinds of mixed emotions. But God saw to it that it got worked out. And he did that uh, with others uh, through history. With the disciples, he taught them personally on this earth for three and a half years. And then when he called Paul later, he went out in the desert with him and taught him one-on-one -on -one personally for at least three years. Or was it three and a half? I forget. Three, I think. So he prepared them ahead of time. Now, that was the first time that he really came on and did it completely hands-on. He came as a human being to dwell with us. And he taught them personally, eyeball to eyeball, mouth to mouth, for that time to prepare them. Then he turned them loose to go do the work. And he said, I'll be with you all the way through, but you've got to go do the work. So they had to stay close to him to get the power, the strength, the energy, the knowledge to go do the work he wanted done. Now, he did the same thing here in the end. He began to call Herbert Armstrong, but he didn't come and dwell with him and teach him eyeball to eyeball the way he did Paul in the desert or Saul. 
Didn't do it that way. He challenged him and got into studying and revealed those truths that he told us there in reading about Sardis we better hang on to. Okay? He taught in those things. So then it started very small and grew. Now, just like in the early New Testament, he says, this time I'm going to be hands-on right here at the end. I will come and dwell with you. I will come suddenly to my temple. I will be a wall of fire around you. So he's going to come and be here. Now, will he be visible? I don't know. Maybe not. I kind of doubt it in some ways. But at least he's going to not be on his throne in heaven, and you've got to go off and pray to the north. He says, I'm going to be there. Now, he did that with ancient Israel in the desert, didn't he? He says, you go do your business outside the camp, because I may come and walk through the camp at night, and I don't want to step in it. So he was there. He came and walked through the camp. And we pray that he come and be with us in a service. Is he here? We prayed to ask him to. And I think it's his will that he would answer that prayer. I believe he's here. I don't see him. And I'm scared to. <laughs> but I believe in spirit he's here. And I think that it is going to be a more permanent and a more uh, obvious presence here in the very near future. That we can see things happening that obviously his presence requires. What time is it? Yeah, i got a little time left. This, this clock's kind of fast anyway. Now, let's review a little bit. Because I think that you were involved in something that is very, very important. Now, let me state this now, and I'll probably state it again toward the end of this. My memory sometimes... i got a really, really good memory. It's just really short. Uh, it doesn't last very long. <clears throat> so whether I'll bring this up again or not, I don't know, but I probably will. You were called in the Worldwide Church of God, most of you at least your older ones, and some of you younger ones learn from your parents who were called into that. So you're sort of a second generation or third generation at this point uh, from that, but still learned it via a process that came from Christ through Herbert Armstrong and the ministry to you, through parents, however you got to it. But I went over all those scriptures on called and calling for a very important reason. Because he says that each of us has to be called. So we were called into Worldwide Church of God, speaking in general here. <clears throat> A calling from God. Now, remember when Samuel was called? God says, Samuel. He thinks it's Eli. So he goes into Eli. You called? Nah, I'm asleep. Leave me alone. Probably didn't say that quite, but might have been his emotion. So Samuel goes back to bed. Samuel! Huh? Runs into Eli again. And finally, God says, hey, wait, don't run to Eli. This is me. 
Listen. I'm paraphrasing, but that's kind of the scenario. But God himself called. And he says, no man can come except the Spirit of the Father draw him. So he looked at you and called you. Yeah, you. You too. He knew you by name. He called you for his purposes. Now, when God calls, is it a good thing to ignore him? I think not. It isn't a good thing to argue. Well, yeah, but I have a speech impediment. I, I can't do that. Moses, you can do this. Oh, but I can't. I, I can't speak well. All right, you're going to go do it, but Aaron will speak for you. Oh. You're going to do the job. I called you. All right, so you won't talk. Somebody else can talk, but you're going to do it. Oh, okay. Isaiah said, I'm of unclean lips. So the angel came and pressed a coal from the fire in his wings against his lips. So it's okay, they're clean now. I burned all the filth off. Now go. So he says, then, well, he didn't say now go. He said, who am I going to send? Isaiah felt his lips and said, hmm, send me. When God calls you, you better answer. When God calls you, you better do what He says. When God calls you, you better not give up. How long did Noah work? Did he give up? No. Did he finish the job? Yeah. How about Abraham? Went on for a long, long time. Finished the job. So did the others. Now the apostles started getting killed, and that's as much as they could do. But the Apostle John lived on, died of a ripe old age, late in his 90s apparently. And he saw it through to the end of the 70 years. So when God calls you by name, brings you to his truth, you have been called and you had better stay with it. That's the whole example of the whole Bible. All the way through. Now I'm telling you something. He called you into Worldwide, and you stayed there until it died. And that calling was kind of complete, wasn't it? Didn't that work end? Herbert Armstrong used to tell us, you're called to do a work. You're not just here for personal salvation. You're here to do a work. You remember him saying that over and over and over. You can be saved, it's okay, but that's not what you're here for. But that work stopped. We're not called to do that anymore at the moment, are we? Many were called, many were spewed, and that's a done deal. And then it died, and he said, well, i still got a few names left out of Sardis that are still alive. He spewed us all out, and he told us to repent, overcome, and grow now, wouldn't you consider it that when he told us there in Ezekiel 17, worldwide would be put to the sword spiritually, and 
We went through spiritual famine, we went through a spiritual sword, and we went through spiritual slavery, and there's not much left. Ten percent, he says, is all that will be left. So, when he says, I'm wiping it out, like he told Isaiah, till it all be destroyed, then a tenth will return. What are they to do? It's a new work. That work with Herbert Armstrong is done. Finished. Isn't going on anymore. He says, I'm going to take a twig, and I'm going to plant it, and I'm going to bring back some elements from this dry tree, and I'm going to make it to grow and flourish. 10% of what was. That is a new work. It is not a continuation of what was. We must grasp this. You've been called to a totally new building. Didn't he say in Haggai that he was going to build his temple back and that there would be old men around who would see the new temple and say that the old didn't even begin to compare with it. So if Herbert Armstrong built the temple, it wasn't as good a temple as what is coming. Spiritually speaking, or probably physically either. So if it's something that's new, it didn't exist before. Or it dried up and died and he took some pieces of it and resurrected them. So if you're part of what's coming, it's a resurrection of some branches off a dry tree. Something that was dead. I hope we can grasp that this is a new beginning. It has nothing to do with what went before. Many were called, now few are chosen. Chosen for what? To go do something. Chosen means called, doesn't it? I choose you to be on my team. I choose you to play quarterback. I choose you to play tight end. Doesn't mean you're supposed to get drunk. But when we choose up teams, we're calling someone out of the line. Isn't that the way it worked? you just kind of all line up there and they'd have two captains in. And they would start calling people out of the line to be on their team to do their job. God's doing the same thing. He said to the high guy, I will stir them to come. And they will build my temple. And it will be a better temple than that which was before and that which they were part of. This is something new. Now, let's grasp and understand that. If you are here with the knowledge that you have now been given that you did not have before, and you have an awful lot of knowledge you did not have before, you are responsible for that knowledge. God will hold you accountable for that knowledge. It is something new. He says there in Isaiah, I could turn to it. 
I create a new work. I'm establishing something you haven't heard of before. This is new. Now, the things you've learned about Zion, about the promised land, about where Jerusalem is, things you have learned about the Passover, things you've learned about the calendar, you've learned things you never knew before. Never heard of them in the Worldwide Church of God. It would have been thought of as absolutely off-the-wall crazy. Some of the things we now know are fact. Right? So, it's new knowledge. It's a new project. Therefore, it's a new calling. And God has only opened a very few minds to that up to this point. But he said, after it all falls apart, 10% will come. they got to know where to go. they got to know what to do. They have to know how long they have to get it done. They have to know a lot of things that 99.9% of the church this very day do not have a clue about. It's only been a very, very few who've had their minds open and were called to come here to prepare for that 10%. And some did not grasp that. This is important. They did not grasp what they had learned. They didn't grasp that it was a calling. And they got upset over some doctrine, or they got upset over some preacher, wonder who that was, or whatever, and they left. Or they rebelled. And they're still here, and they're doing their own thing, not what God called them to come here to do. Now, that's scary. That is very scary. Because if God starts something, and He calls your name and says, I want you on this team, you leave the city and come out here in the wilderness, and I'll deliver you here, He means business. You don't have an option. Do you realize that? There's no options. We either answer the call and do what he's told us to do, or we become a failure, and we are in danger of judgment. Because we didn't do what God said to do. Herbert Armstrong often said, if you have knowledge... If you're given knowledge, God makes you responsible for that knowledge. And you must use it, and you must not deny it. You must not let it go. Isn't that what we just read about Sardis? Hang on to it. Don't let it go. Keep it and repent. So you had good doctrine. Now follow it and follow me. And then he says, it's all going to fall apart until it's all destroyed and then 10% will return and they will flourish and they will grow. It is not happenstance that you're sitting here. God calls your name. Now I realize there's some here who are brand new to this and I may be blowing them away. I don't know. 
But for those who have understood and have come here for those reasons, you are held accountable. It is a calling from God. I'm going to explain that more probably in the next sermon I give. But I want to throw it at you today as a beginning thing. You can't quit. You can't quit this. Because this is where God has started to give the knowledge that is necessary to have a place for that 10% to come. I'm not saying we're necessarily the leaders of it. But we're the prep crew. He showed me that I was supposed to come here. And he showed me what this place meant. And I preached it. And you picked up on it. And you said, I need to go there. So you understood. And once you understand, you're responsible. You will be held accountable for what you learned. Now, is this a good time to go back to Chicago or Tennessee or Florida? Is this a good time to say, well, I think the preacher's dirty. He's filthy. He ain't no good. You know what? Some of the things that are said about me are true. But I'm the only one that knows what is and what isn't. But you know what mostly I've been accused of? 99% of it is not true at all. I didn't murder my wife. I didn't have affairs with all these that I said I did. I didn't do those things. Now, do I have filthy lips? Do I have filthy thoughts? Do I do some things wrong sometimes? Hey, I'm just a man. That's all I am. And every day, I pray for God to forgive me and give me a new chance and not to throw me away and to use me in spite of myself to help you fulfill the calling you've been given. That's what I'm here for. And I want us to get that, that this isn't just joining a church. You can go join Living, you can join Philadelphia, you can join United, you can join one of hundreds of little groups that are there. But God worked through one man to establish the beginning of the hundred years of the end time works. I say works because there are two, one temple and then another. And he always does that. So, no, you're not supposed to look too much to a man. We made that mistake with Herbert Armstrong. If you look too much to a man, if he does good, hey, everything will be okay, but you're still forgetting to look to God first. Now, if he does bad, or you think he did bad, then you're in trouble because you run away from the calling and the work that God called you to do because of a man. That's scary. God called me, but man turned me away. Is that going to be your excuse when Christ comes back? Well, I know you called me, but, you know, this man, he got in my way. So I gave it up. I don't think I want to use that logic on him. 
Now, we need to recognize the importance of what God has done here and what he is going to do. And when we recognize that importance, we will see it as a calling just as much as we saw ourselves being called into Worldwide Church of God. Because you learned things coming into Worldwide that you had never known before. And when you came here, you began to learn things that you had never known before. That's just a fact. In 99.9%, I pick a number, of the church still don't know the things you've learned. They don't have a clue that the American Southwest is part of the promised land and the original beginning. They don't have a clue. So some of them are still wanting to go to Petra or go to Israel. Where are they going to be in trouble? Because they don't know. Now, God is going to do some things, and we're going to see them, that's going to cause 10% of them to understand and come. He will call them. He will stir them. Stirring, calling, what's the difference? He stirs your name. He calls your name. I want you here. Jack, John, Jill, whatever your name is. He calls you. Here's the, here's the information. Now get on it. We have no choice. This could be salvational for us. Get it? If we're not part of that 10%, that tithe that he brings here, then we are left in the tribulation. That's 90% of the church. And out of that, he says about a third will repent and go on into the kingdom, and the rest won't. Now, does that sound salvational or not? you got to be part of the ten, or you got to go into the tribulation and be part of the third of them that repent, or you're out of it. That's what he says. Make your calling and election sure. 